Yep, and we are ready to go. We hope you are as well. Uh, James Fireman is here, courtesy St. Fury to Market LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Beyond now, this hour, you can also reach out to James anytime. Would love to uh, love to talk to you, don't you know? And the way you do that is one 821 5900 Email help at disabilityrights.ca. But here and now, phone lines are open to the station, so we're ready to take your calls if you want to take the time to call in. And that is 416-872-1010. Again, 416-872-1010. Always uh, get us warmed up, as we say, James, with the week that was or something you've been working on, pal. What say you this week? Well, John, before I get into my week that was, uh, I this is first and foremost a show where people can interact with us, at least it is for the next few weeks. And so in this particular case, we had someone who wrote into us actually just a few minutes before the show started. And I'd like to take advantage of that and get to the question that this person is posing mm-hmm. because it is an interesting one. Now, John, is your technology working or am I going to be doing two jobs right now? Let me click over. No, it's going to be you, pal. No, it's good times. <laughs> well, I can just do everything. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So we have a texter writing us, and he writes as follows. Hello, I'm currently on short-term disability and wondering whether I should apply for LTD. My father is in late stages of terminal illness, and I am a sole caregiver. Last year, my wife was diagnosed with a rare cancer. She underwent two surgeries and radiation treatments. In early June, we found out that the cancer has metastasized and that she needed additional treatments, which she's undergoing. Her prognosis is unclear, and she has medical appointments, treatment every week. My family doctor and psychologist both agree that it is best that I am home with my wife and able to help my father as his needs continue to change as his health declines. I'm not able to work right now because I'm anxious about my wife's health and am frequently called to deal with my father's issues. My employer has recently given me a deadline to apply for LTD. My health care providers are supportive as they understand my situation. However, I'm not sure if this is the best option or whether I should take an unpaid leave. As these could be the last months or years with my wife, I would like the option to travel in Canada and internationally as her health allows and in between her treatments. I fear that my employer will view these trips as leisure rather than precious moments with my wife. Please advise. So this is obviously a very difficult and complicated situation that this person is in. Mm-hmm. And everyone listening is going to feel an awful lot of sympathy for this person. I mean, that is a lot to be handling. So I, I want to start with that, of course. In terms of practical advice, how to approach this, I mean, if you are able to afford it, my advice is to not worry about the other things first. Worry about your wife, worry about your your father, and do what you need to do for the people in your life that you're closest with, because you're right. I mean, life is short and there's a limited amount of time with both of these people. And so as much as you can, I would strongly encourage you to do whatever you're able to, to spend time with them and to help them as much as you can. Now that's easy to say, it's not always practical to be able to do, and you need to, you need money to survive. Most people are going to, are not going to be independently wealthy and able to simply afford to leave work without any income coming in. And so that's, of course, why uh, this person is writing to us and asking about his situation and whether it's something that might allow him to make an application or a successful application for long-term disability benefits. And it's a fair question. The answer right now is I'm not really sure. And the reason I'm not sure is understandably 
uh, this gentleman has not spent a lot of time talking about the impact that this situation is having on him. And I totally understand that. And I'm not for a moment assuming that there has been no impact. Of course, there has been. It would be impossible to be in this situation and not be profoundly affected by that. Of yeah. course, he is. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether medically the impact of dealing with the situation with both his father and his wife at the same time is disabling to the point where he would be unable to work for a medical reason. And the medical reason, of course, would have to be his own. In other words, the question isn't whether or not, in terms of long-term disability coverage, the question is not whether or not this gentleman is, whether it would be better for him to be able to do that. The question is whether he is capable of continuing to work from a medical perspective, whether he is capable of continuing to work while this is going on in the background. In other words, is his mental health stable and sufficient to be able to withstand what is happening and i don't know the answer to that the answer may well be that it is not or he might be able to i don't know and i'm certainly far from qualified to be able to answer that question but if he wants to be successful in or in applying for long-term disability benefits in this situation what is going to be necessary is establishing that he is suffering from a mental health condition that is preventing him from being able to do the the his occupation and you know it's not simply a matter of just having a diagnosis or not and there is a very practical level to this people think in terms of diagnoses or the the continuum of any particular diagnosis and where you fall But from a very practical standpoint, one can imagine a scenario where somebody who is dealing with this type of situation is just not able to get their mind straight, is not able to function in their occupation, particularly, and I don't know what this gentleman does. I don't think he mentioned what his occupation was. But if his occupation is something that requires him to use significant executive function, if he has to think very hard if his job requires very high level cognitive function then it's going to be i would imagine almost impossible for him to be able to function with all that going on in the background if his job involves anything having to do with safety or protecting the safety of others then one would think it's really not a good idea that he continue on in that occupation either so these are the types of factors that would have to be considered when you're looking at someone in this situation and so if there was a disability there if there was a disability that could be supported by his treating family physician by any therapist he's seeing or psychiatrist then i would think it is something where he would be entitled to long-term disability benefits of course the devil is in the details but moving on to the other part of uh, of the question is whether or not that would even be a good idea and in my view it almost certainly would be So first and foremost, if you are applying for long-term disability benefits and if you are successful, then obviously you're going to be having some income coming in, and that's going to make things a lot easier. Now, the one issue that is raised by this gentleman who texted in is whether or not uh, there would be concerns about his ability to travel, and that's a fair question. The answer to that is really one that I could only... I can only answer by looking at the policy because every policy has some variance in terms of the travel restrictions. 
most policies, most group disability policies will have some degree of travel restriction, but usually that restriction is for traveling outside of Canada. How long you're able to do that without prior permission is really usually, it varies from uh, policy to policy. Sometimes I've seen uh, two weeks, I've seen six weeks, I've seen three months, I've seen six months. So you really have to look in the policy and see what is there. Obviously, if it's more lenient, that might be sufficient in and of itself. If you have the ability to travel without permission from your insurer for six months out of the country, that would probably be enough to satisfy the travel uh, issues that this gentleman is talking about. But even if it's not, even if it's more restrictive, that doesn't mean that you absolutely cannot do that. All it means is that in order to do so, you would need to get prior approval. So certainly it's something where you could write to your insurer. If you were approved for benefits, you could write to your insurer, your insurer and with the support of your doctors indicating that travel would be beneficial in the context of the, the, the uh, this person's own mental health issues, if travel would be beneficial, then it's something that the insurer may be compelled to approve as long as it's reasonable and as long as he continues to get treatment. If in that circumstance, with the support of its doctors, the insurer who had approved benefits before then turned around and said, no, you can't do that. We're not going to allow you and your wife to go travel. In that circumstance, what I would probably advise them to do is to go travel anyway. Really? Knowing that the insurer is going to cut him off, I would probably advise him to do it. First and foremost, because if his time is limited with his wife, then I think you don't care what the insurer says. Some things are just too valuable. Some things are more important. And so that's where I come from initially. That's my first reaction. But even beyond that, assuming that you know it's difficult to just give up on that money, I don't think you'd have to. Because if the insurer took that position, it would really open them up, not just to a lawsuit, to recover the benefits they should have paid, but it would open them up to punitive damages. If there is treatment, in this case, traveling would be approved treatment from the doctor. There is approved treatment that the insurer is saying you should not do, that you should not do, um, and they have whatever reasons they want. If your treating doctors are telling you that this is a good idea and the insurer is standing in the way of it, particularly in those circumstances, I really can't see a scenario where a judge is going to look kindly on that and it's not going to open them up to significant punitive damages as a result. So the long and the short of it is, I would say, absolutely apply for long-term disability benefits. I don't know because I don't have enough information as to whether or not this application is likely to be successful or not, but it's certainly something that I'm more than happy to help with. I have this this individual's phone number from the text, and I'm going to reach out once we're off the air, and hopefully we'll be able to set up a, a free consultation so we can discuss these issues further. Uh, great way to get it started, James. Let's take a short break and get back into our content. We got emails coming through and uh, questions from mydisabilityquestions.com. That is uh, free and easy for you to use as well, anonymous. And the email address you want to go to is help at disabilityrights.ca and reach James and his team anytime. one 855 821 5900 might be something more of a, a private chat that you want to have with James to use that number. But bring it on air now. Call us right here. We're live and ready to go. 416 872 1010. We'll continue. 
with the Disability Law Show. It is uh, 120 and we're back at it. John Scholes here, James Fireman as well. He's doing all the heavy lifting, all the uh, all the phone calls are being taken by, well, he's answering them anyway, right? So he's the guy who wants doing that. You can always reach out to James after the show. He's uh, great to talk to. He's got a great team he's got behind him. That's one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and uh, this website is well. You can learn lots and uh, use it anonymously called pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Check that one out, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. We'll get to one of our questions, James, here in a moment from mydisabilityquestions.com, but I know you had uh, something else you wanted to you wanted to chat about, pal. What do you think? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about surveillance. I've had a couple of files recently where my client was investigated by some private investigator during the course either of the adjudication or the litigation and it's a topic that gets people really anxious especially when you're dealing with insurance or lawsuits and people are always really concerned about the impact of one of these investigators following them around and understandably are a little creeped out by it I can't do much about the second part of it because the reality is having someone investigate you is always going to be a little bit creepy in that sense. But I can tell you, first of all, that it is fairly unusual, notwithstanding that I've had two cases in a row where it's come up. It's definitely the exception. I would say on the cases that come to me, the the ones that I've been retained on, it's probably something like every maybe 15 or so cases i see any surveillance and they have to produce it if there's been any and keep in mind that the cases that are coming to me are the cases where things have gone wrong and so it's already self-selecting for cases where the insurer is being more skeptical than they might otherwise be so it isn't something that i think most people really have to spend a lot of time worrying about in the sense that it's just pretty unusual but even more than that Surveillance is not something you have to concern yourself from a practical standpoint, as long as you have a legitimate disability. If you are legitimately disabled from work, if you are following your doctor's advice, if you are acting reasonably, and if when you speak with your doctor and your insurer, you're being honest in what you're capable of doing, then the surveillance doesn't matter at all. All they're going to find is proof that everything that you've said is correct. That all of the limitations you've told your doctors and the insurer that are preventing you from working are in fact the case that you are not able to do those things and you are not able to work. And it is my experience that when I get surveillance, I'm not concerned about it. I'm usually really excited to see what is in there because far more often than not, I find the end result is that the surveillance that the insurance company has paid for in order to try and undermine the claim actually has the exact opposite effect. It actually is almost always compelling evidence that my client is indeed disabled. So I can give you a couple examples. The The first is from a file that I was dealing with a few weeks ago, and my client had a fairly heavy physical occupation and had longstanding arthritis that got worse over time. This wasn't in dispute. This was seen objectively on medical imaging, and the insurer certainly did not disagree with this, at least initially. It was very clear that this person was not able to continue in their regular occupation. What became an issue, though, is that shortly after going on medical leave, which they had known where it was coming for a long time because his condition had been deteriorating, 
he and his wife moved and wound up buying a outdoor business. I'm trying to be non-specific because I, I don't want to give away too many details for privacy reasons. But they purchased an outdoor business that his wife was going to run. The assumption from the insurer, though, was that really my client wasn't actually disabled and he was the one who was running the business. This turned out to be completely false. And the best evidence I had of that was the surveillance conducted by the insurer. What they decided to do was hire an investigator to stake out this business on Labor Day weekend, which for an outdoors business is the weekend where they would have done more business than any other. And so if he was really involved in the business, surely they would have seen significant evidence of that. And he had contested all along. It wasn't as though he was you know, crippled in bed and could not do anything. It's that he couldn't do anything for any sustained amount of time and that he didn't have any particular role in the business. He would help out occasionally here and there. There was a small retail aspect that on occasion he would fill in for his wife, but he wasn't really involved in the day-to-day operations of the business. And that's exactly what the surveillance showed. They followed him around for three days. I think there was about 34 hours of video or of investigation. They got a total of, I think, about 24 minutes of observations during those three days. And in those 24 minutes, they're broken down into three or four minute chunks. There was nothing that he was doing that suggested that he had the ability to do more than he had ever said, or in any way suggested that he had any significant role in the running of the business. It's exactly as he had said. Now, the insurer took that information. This is during the during the adjudication of the file. And they suggested that it showed that he had greater capacity to work than he had let on, and they cut him off. But this is just claims handlers trying to make something where there isn't anything there because the insurer had spent the money on this investigation and wanted to be able to justify it. And so they cherry picked these couple minutes here or there where he had been doing things that were well within his functional capacity that he had advised the insurer and suggested that it meant that he was able to do more. And so they terminated his benefits. But what was really interesting is that they then wrote to the insurer or they wrote to the employer and told them that the surveillance had revealed that he was able to do more than he had suggested and then indicated what his functional limitations were, his sitting tolerance, his standing tolerance, his walking tolerance. And the functional limitations that the insurer advised the employer about after the surveillance were exactly the same as the functional limitations that they had before. Nothing had changed. The insurer acknowledged that, said the functional limitations were exactly the same. And so it was very clearly a situation of an insurer doing surveillance and then just picking what they wanted out of it to try and justify that this person was not entitled to benefits. And when we went to mediation, that was very clear. The insurer very clearly understood once I got involved that they were not going to be able to take that position and that because they had taken that position, they had significant exposure beyond simply just paying the benefits. So that was certainly useful. And then more recently, I've got a case coming up where my client has an ongoing issue, particularly related to her cognitive function as a result of repeated head injury. And so they, they've done a couple of days of surveillance. And this one is you know, less shocking or, or, or less useful, I would say, than the other, 
except that it shows it, they followed her around for two days and shows her doing nothing, which is, of course, consistent with what she's been saying. And it isn't as though she can't do anything. It's that she just typically doesn't. Or when she does, it is very limited. She'll do a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. And that is exactly what the surveillance has shown. And it is almost always the case that when we get the surveillance on any particular file, it is going to support what my client had and my client's doctors have been saying all along because they're being honest about it. If you have a legitimate disability and you've been honest with it all along, then the surveillance is your friend. The surveillance is the surveillance is going to help you. You shouldn't fear it. You should actually want it. And it does help in those situations. And you better believe when I get my hands on it, I use it that way. I don't just argue that it, it, it's not meaningful in terms of helping the insurer. I take it further and I say, this is actually very compelling evidence that you were wrong all along, that my client has been honest and forthright with you. And now you have evidence from your own investigator proving that. That's the way that works. We're going to take a short break, James. we got Jeffrey waiting on the line, so we'll get to that as soon as we come back. In the meantime, do like Jeffrey. Give us a call. Ask questions live. 416-872-1010 is the way you do that. Email help at disabilityrights.ca as well. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You betcha. It is uh, 135. We're back at it. James Fireman, always ready to take your calls. And uh, we get the emails. We get to mydisabilityquestions.com. Of course, we read those out and dissect them. But uh, you are the priority when you're calling into the show. As always, it's 416-872-1010. In that regard, we'll get to uh, Jeffrey, who has been graciously hanging on for a couple minutes. Jeff, thanks so much for uh, for waiting, pal. Feel free to uh, to go ahead and tell us uh, exactly what's going on. How are you, Jeff? I've been. Oh, there we go. There okay, he is. Jeffrey, can hey, you Jeffrey. hear us? All right, pal. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's basically a comment about you're talking about surveillance. I was injured mm-hmm. a long time ago back in front of three police officers and other witnesses back on September 17th, 1993. I was the first serious injury under no-fault insurance, and the adjuster that they put on my file kept me under surveillance 24-7 for three years, insisting it was so convenient to have three police officers see me get injured. How do I know all these officers? How do I know the person who hit me? And even though I was sent to a number of hospitals in the GTA that all said, yes, there's massive trauma and damage to my spine, the adjuster refused to pay even one cent in benefits, even though I had the income replacement benefits and I was off from work, I ended up having spine. Three spine surgeries, brain surgery, and two leg surgeries, and the adjuster the whole time refused to pay a cent. So, anybody who says that being under surveillance is, is you know, fine and everything, I didn't do anything. I, I didn't complain. My lawyer was over. Said, "Why don't you chase them off?" Because I said, and "I said to him because then they'll think I have something to hide." And I didn't. Well, take any Jeffrey, them. Jeffrey, you know that really does not sound like a pleasant situation. That's for sure. Uh, and I can I absolutely understand why. You know, here we are more than thirty years later, and it's still something that bothers you. It would bother mm-hmm. me too. But for those people who are listening at home understand that the situation is much different than it was 30 years ago. And what Jeffrey was dealing with was the accident benefit scheme, which comes into play only if you've been involved in a motor vehicle accident and you're trying to get the statutory benefits that you're entitled to from your own insurance company. 
that is a very specific situation and not typically what we're talking about in terms of long-term disability benefits. In terms of long-term disability benefits and surveillance, it is significantly rarer than it is in motor in the motor vehicle context, particularly going back in time. And what I'll tell you is that recent cases are going to make it even rarer still. And in particular, I'm talking about a case from earlier this year, and it's a case that we, we talked about at some length when it came out. It's Baker and Blue Cross. Okay. Baker was the plaintiff. Blue Cross was the insurer. And in that particular case, there was an inordinate amount of surveillance, or at least I would have said inordinate, until Jeffrey called in and told us about the three years he was under surveillance. It wasn't quite that bad uh, in this particular case, or so I understand. But what happened was the jury that heard this case more recently heard about all this surveillance that Blue Cross had been doing in order to try and justify the termination of benefits in that particular case and determined that Blue Cross had acted in bad faith as a result and they awarded punitive damages. And when I say punitive damages, I'm not talking about a couple bucks. In that particular case, they awarded $1.5 million in punitive damages. Now, it was a jury, so there there aren't written reasons that explicitly link the surveillance to their decision. And so, you know, I, I'm making an assumption here, although I would argue it's a reasonable one in the circumstances, because it does appear that that was the thing that was most offensive about how Blue Cross had conducted its adjudication litigation. But that's my view of it. Other people may, may, may differ. But what I can tell you is what I see on a day-to-day basis. And since that has happened, that has led to a significant chilling effect on how insurers conduct their business. Now, you may be wondering, St. Fireman, you just started the show off by talking about two files that you recently had that had surveillance. What do you mean it's chilling insurers? Well, keep in mind, there's, you know, the surveillance that we're talking about there was done historically. This isn't surveillance that was done yesterday. This is surveillance that's coming to my attention now. And so it is the case that surveillance is much different now than it had been in the past. And so I would reiterate what I said in the last segment of the show, that surveillance is really not something in the context of long-term disability benefits that you should be concerned about. It is rare, and when it happens, more often than not, in fact, I would argue far more often than not, it works to your advantage. The only time you need to be concerned about surveillance in the context of long-term disability is if you are lying, if you are not legitimately disabled. If that's the case, then yeah, you should be concerned about surveillance, and if that's the case, I hope they get you. But otherwise, if you have a legitimate disability, there's nothing to worry about at all. We're going, to, uh, we're going to move on to our first question of the show, James. This one, again, it's a uh, free website for people to use called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. It says, James, my insurance company is insisting on using their messaging portal to communicate. However, they have removed pr- previous messages exchanged over the term of my long-term disability claim. Can I request that they use my regular email for communication so I have access to all of our communication? It seems like they're managing the communication so that I am unable to access what has been exchanged previously. That doesn't sound very nice 
Uh, This is so frustrating. I totally understand what this person is writing about here. So just to give context to our listeners, this doesn't happen with all insurers, but there are particular insurers that have their own communication portals. And so when they send you something or want to receive something, you have to go and log into a special website and all of the communication is sent through a portal once you log in. So it isn't something that you have in your inbox, something that you're able to keep on your own. And that can make things very frustrating. It can make it difficult for you to access previous communication. And frankly, it can make it much harder for you to just simply be able to communicate with your claims handle. And so I I find this all really frustrating. Certainly you can ask if they're willing to do it, but I wouldn't hold your breath. If they have spent the money to implement their own secure system with a portal for communication, they are probably going to operate under a policy that requires all communication to be done that way. Is that fair? Well, I mean, I suppose there are arguments that they can give in favor of it. I don't know whether a judge would agree or not, but from a practical standpoint, if they're not prepared to allow you to communicate otherwise, unfortunately, you're probably going to have to uh, go along with it and use their portal. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing that you can do. As I always discuss, it's a very good idea to write things down. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, because you don't have the ability to freely access all of the communication, what I would suggest is every time you log in and there's a new email, copy and paste it and save it on your own hard drive, on your computer. And every time you send an email, do the exact same thing or take a screenshot of it and save it. You take a screenshot of it where it shows the date on it and save it so that there is a record that you're able to keep. And as long as you do that, you're in the same situation. Yes, it's definitely more of a pain in the ass. Definitely, it makes it more difficult for you to be able to catalog the communication in a way that can effectively ensure that you're protected, but it doesn't make it impossible. And for most people, that extra step of having to do the screenshot or copy and paste, although it is a pain, it's worthwhile and is something that most people are going to be able to do. I certainly feel for those who are not technologically inclined or who aren't comfortable using their computer in that way, perhaps in that situation. If you have a close family member that is more comfortable with that, perhaps lean on them to help you Mm -hmm. figure out how to do it or even to just do the copying for you just to make sure that you're going to have access to that demographic. Appreciate that. Uh, note from mydisabilityquestions.com. Shauna, you are up next through your email, so uh, we'll get to that after a short break. In the meantime, you want to drop us a phone call live here on air. We've still got lots of lines open and lots of time. It's 416-872-1010 and the email address help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You bet. We're back. We still have some minutes to go, so let's uh, dive into a couple emails here. Uh, James Shauna, as promised, is up next. Is uh, hi there. I'm a nurse applying for long-term disability. I have vestibular dysfunction causing frequent falls and chronic severe migraines. I was also recently diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. I've done three rounds of physio. I see a chiropractor and osteopath regularly. I've developed anxiety and depression because I haven't had any improvement for over a year. 
I see a psychotherapist in hopes to learn coping strategies. I've seen a neurologist, uh, rheumatologist, ENT, and my GP. I fear many of my symptoms are considered subjective since MRI and CT x-rays have all been negative. Do I have any chance of being approved for LTD? What can I do to improve those chances? This is all due to a virus I had back in the summer of 2022. I developed vestibular neuritis and the rest of my symptoms compounded. Wow, that's from Shauna. Yeah, that's a lot going on there. But yeah. to answer the the broadest question here, do I have a chance of being approved for LTE? The answer is yes. You certainly do have a chance of being approved for LTE. There is a lot that you have done that supports that you have an ongoing disability. First of all, even if your symptoms are considered to be subjective, you develop vestibular neuritis. And my, if my understanding is correct, that can be objectively confirmed. And even though your symptoms can't all be objectively confirmed, that doesn't matter. Long-term disability benefits do not require objective confirmation of symptoms. Think, for example, about mental health issues. That's not something that you're going to be able to objectively confirm, nor can you for many other symptoms. Pain, for example, is not an objective symptom. It is by definition subjective, but that doesn't mean that you're not entitled to compensation, that you're not entitled to your benefits under a long-term disability policy. So you certainly can be approved. Having said that, Sean is you know, is looking at the right things here and her concern is in the right place because even if you have something that starts with an objective condition and leads to subjective symptoms, it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to be approved, nor should you, because everyone's going to react differently and everyone is going to be at a different spot on the continuum of any particular disease or illness. And so what insurers are typically going to look at is, first of all, what are you doing in order to treat your condition? And so here they're going to take note of the fact that in addition to seeing her GP, Sean has also been referred and has been assessed and presumably is getting treatment by neurologists, a rheumatologist and an ENT, as well as seeing a psychotherapist. So it is not as though she is just sitting back and saying, oh, well, I got this virus back in 2022, I'm disabled, pay me. Not at all. She's very aggressively seeking answers to try and understand the condition and find an effective way to treat it, even if she hasn't found it yet. She's undergone numerous tests. She's had an MRI, a CT scan, and x-rays. Um, she's also seeing, I, I left out the chiropractor and osteopath that she's seeing regularly as well, too, a moment ago when I was listing, uh, and the physiotherapist. She's also been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic yeah. fatigue. Both are conditions that certainly could entitle you to benefits if they are severe enough, as well as the severe migraines. So the answer to the other question is, you know, do, what can I do to improve my chances? Honestly, not much. I don't know that there's much that Shauna could do beyond what she's already doing. It seems, I'm not a doctor, so certainly I'm not in a position to suggest medically what she can do. And if there are any other recommendations that any of her doctors or therapists have suggested, then do that. That's what else you can do. If there is something else, it's hard to imagine there is. But if there is something else being recommended, try that, even if it's something that you would prefer not to do. So at least you can say, I tried it. If there are negative consequences to that, then make sure that if, there, you know, if there's side effects from medication or 
a particular therapy causes pain or discomfort, make sure that that's noted in the clinical records mm-hmm. and that you get approval from the therapist or doctor to discontinue that particular treatment. And therefore, the insurer will not be able to say that you haven't followed all treatment recommendations. If you have been as aggressive as Shauna, if someone out there is listening, they're as aggressive as Shauna in pursuing what is the underlying cause of your condition and how you can effectively treat it. And the insurer denies in that circumstances, call me because I'm going to take your case. Case like that, if the insurer denied it, that's something that I would very readily take on as a lawyer because anybody who's going through what Sean is going through in these circumstances, I have to believe they are legitimately disabled. What Sean is going through to try and find an answer is far more onerous than going to work. You know, if, if you were, you know, if sure someone, if, if an insurance company were looking at this, so if they were being skeptical and they were looking at each case as though, you know, is this a legitimate disability or is this someone just trying to get out of work? Nobody's going to go through the hurdles that Sean is going through just to try and avoid working. It's far more onerous to do what she's doing right now. And that all of these doctors continue to refer her to other doctors suggests that the doc- her doctors and therapists absolutely believe her as well. So I, I would say that there is a good to very good chance that you get approved. The only hesitation I have is in dealing with insurance companies as often as I do, I'm well aware that even in a case where someone is very clearly entitled to benefits, there is a certain percentage of the time where the insurance company is simply going to deny. Just because they will take a look at something and dig into a particular factor that they believe they can use to justify that denial even if the broader picture makes very clear that they're disabled. And so, you know, that's getting back to what Shauna had raised at the outset about the subjective nature of some of her symptoms. It's possible that an insurance company, that the claims handler assigned Shauna's file might look at that and say, well, there isn't anything objective that shows that she's suffering from these symptoms and therefore we're going to deny the claim. I can assure you that doing so does not mean that they're right. All it means is that they're playing the numbers game and hoping that Shauna doesn't contact a lawyer and bring a lawsuit to try and recover the benefits that she otherwise should be entitled to. But clearly in this situation, she should be entitled to it. And so if her insurer were to cut her off, I would absolutely have no hesitation in being retained on this kind of file. Would they kind of pull the old, oh, this is all just because of a virus you had back, you know, a year and a month ago or a year and two months ago, so the rest of the stuff doesn't apply? I mean, would they try to pull that card because she's got so many compounding problems? Not not, not so much as a, a pre-existing condition, but similar to that based on this virus she had over a year ago? I could. They could try anything, but yeah. it wouldn't be effective. You know, this... It, Think about it in context of uh, of a COVID claim, for example, or something that's just simply entirely unexplained. Those are both situations where you are still absolutely entitled to benefits if you continue to have a medical condition that prevents you from being able to work. And it doesn't have to be clearly identified. It is not the case that if a doctor is unable to figure out what is causing your medical condition that you don't have one. 
And consequently, it's not the case that if your condition is unknown, that you're not entitled to benefits. You are. If you have a medical condition preventing you from working, you are entitled to benefits, whether or not you have a clear diagnosis. And with that, we are done for another show. Thank you so much for uh, joining in. You can reach out to James now that we are done. That number, one more time, one 821 5900 Email we always go to, help at disabilityrights.ca. That one was from mydisabilityquestions.com. And a new website's been around for a couple weeks. Use it. It's free. And that is uh, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. Thank you.